This is Audible. Penguin Random House Audio presents God's Hand on America, Divine Providence in the Modern Era. This is the author, Michael Medved. For my immigrant grandparents, Harry and Sarah Medved, Sally and Bella Hirsch, they came to this favored land and saw God's hand on America. Seven, the five-minute miracle. The Midway Marvel alters everything. Any honest description of the Midway Atoll inevitably resorts to the word desolate. Lost in the vast emptiness of the North Pacific, these windblown specks of coral, rock, and sand amount to a combined landmass of just 2.4 square miles. But for three frantic days in 1942, three insignificant islands became the focus of one of history's most consequential confrontations. The outcome, which reversed the tide of war between America and Japan, hinged on five minutes of miracles, a concentrated cascade of coincidence and luck that still confounds analysts today. The pattern of strange connections began long before the Second World War, when a Yankee sea captain pushed his seal-hunting expedition into uncharted waters. In 1859, N.C. Middlebrooks stumbled upon tiny islands clustered behind a coral reef and proceeded to claim them for himself and his country. Though later officially designated as the westernmost component of the Hawaiian Islands chain, the new discovery lay more than 1,200 miles from Honolulu and shared none of Hawaii's lush greenery or history of human habitation. Instead, Captain Middlebrooks found lonely dunes lightly covered with struggling grasses and shrubs that offered a convenient way station for thousands of ferociously cackling migratory birds. Those birds, in turn, provided a convenient pretext for American conquest. The recently passed Guano Islands Act authorized any American citizen chancing upon previously unclaimed territory with a significant accumulation of bird droppings to take official possession of the site under U.S. law. Neither Captain Middlebrooks nor any subsequent entrepreneur ever attempted to exploit the vital guano resources of the newly mapped atoll, but in August 1867, the Secretary of State decided to add the undeveloped islets to the growing American empire. In the midst of arduous negotiations over the purchase of an exponentially larger tract of land, later called Alaska, William Henry Seward took time to secure congressional approval for the annexation of the atoll, already designated Midway because of its geographic location roughly halfway between California and the mainland of Asia. Noting this advantageous position, a private company got money from Congress in 1871 to dredge through the reefs and establish a mid-Pacific coaling station, but the effort proved a total failure. A handful of other workers turned up in 1903 and planted some non-native trees as they toiled to lay cable for a trans-Pacific telegraph. 
The same year, the Navy opened its own radio station on the islands. As tension mounted with Japan in the late 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt ordered construction of airstrips, gun emplacements, and a seaplane base, covering nearly the entire surface of the unlovely islands. In response, the population of this remote American outpost exploded to 437. Today, residents of the islands number no more than 60, most of them engaged in operating the Midway Atoll National Wildlife Refuge and Battle of Midway National Memorial. There, a few modest plaques and displays quietly commemorate the three days in June 1942, when some 250 ships carrying 100,000 military personnel, American and Japanese, collided in mortal combat to decide control of Midway's desolation and with it the fate of the world. I shall run wild for the first six months. For Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, the charismatic naval commander who became a national icon after his brilliantly executed sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, the remote enemy outpost on Midway Atoll never represented an especially tempting conquest to add to Japan's burgeoning colonial empire. His purpose in targeting the island base in the spring of 1942 wasn't to add real estate, but rather to lure the still crippled and ill-prepared American fleet into a desperate attempt to defend Midway. In open ocean, with his vastly superior and better-trained forces, Yamamoto felt certain he could destroy the Yankee fleet, sending its few surviving big ships to the bottom of the ocean while any battered survivors limped back to Pearl Harbor. At that point, he could assemble his massive fleet to surge eastward, launching a virtually uncontested assault on Hawaii with plenty of seasoned troops for landing and occupation. From there, according to the thinking of Yamamoto's colleagues in the Imperial High Command, the menace of bombing raids on California's aircraft and shipbuilding industries, or even the destruction of the Panama Canal, could push the beaten Americans to cut their losses and sue for peace. But Admiral Yamamoto knew better. He spent more than five years in the United States as an economic student at Harvard, and with two postings as a naval attaché in Washington, the descendant of a venerable samurai family and the adopted son of another, he learned to speak fluent English, traveled across the continent, and made extensive studies of American business and culture. In the process, he also developed a strong taste for American whiskey and gambling, favoring serious games of poker and bridge while occasionally joking he might leave the military to run a casino in Monaco. He once told a secretary at the Japanese embassy in Washington, people who don't gamble aren't worth talking to. In this context, he understood that a war with the Americans would amount to a long-shot bet with potentially dire consequences for Japan. He contemptuously disagreed with other military planners who chronically underestimated the Americans dismissing the materialistic Yankees as soft, spoiled, 
and utterly lacking in the fierce warrior spirit that animated their own disciplined, dedicated armed forces. Yamamoto had personally explored the prodigious, productive power of the U.S. economy and the indescribable vastness of the North American landmass and warned against expectations of any quick or easy victory against the empire's Pacific Ocean rival. Should hostilities once break out between Japan and the United States, he wrote, it would not be enough that we take Guam and the Philippines, nor even Hawaii and San Francisco. To make victory certain, we would have to march into Washington and dictate the terms of peace in the White House. Since he disregarded the idea of capturing the White House as preposterous and inconceivable, he saw no prospect of final victory in a Japanese-American war. Just a half year before Pearl Harbor, Prime Minister Fumimaro Kanoe asked Yamamoto whether the world-class naval resources he had assembled could prevail against the unready Americans. His famous reply proved uncannily prophetic. If I am told to fight, regardless of the consequences, I shall run wild for the first six months or a year, but I have utterly no confidence for the second and third years of the fighting. He responded. The Battle of Midway concluded on June 7, 1942, exactly six months after the attack on Pearl Harbor brought the outraged American colossus into the war. But first came Admiral Yamamoto's promised half year of running wild. Victor Davis Hansen describes the results in his provocative book, The Second World Wars noting the weeks immediately following Pearl Harbor with a mighty imperial fleet easily erasing the old European colonial and American spheres of influence. Naval superiority meant virtually unopposed landings at the Philippines, Thailand, Malaysia, the Dutch East Indies, Wake Island, New Britain, the Gilbert Islands, Guam, and Hong Kong. In just four early naval battles preceding the Battle of the Coral Sea, at Pearl Harbor, Singapore, in the Indian Ocean, and the Java Sea, they sank or grounded six Allied battleships, one carrier, one battle cruiser, six cruisers, and five destroyers, and killed over 6,000 British, Dutch, Commonwealth, and American seamen all without suffering a single ship lost and fewer than 200 dead. As good as lost. With that casualty ratio of 30 to 1, the Empire's formidable propaganda machine promoted the Imperial Navy's triumph so effectively that even Western war correspondents began to believe the claims of Japanese invincibility. After the Battle of the Coral Sea in the first days of May, Emperor Hirohito publicly congratulated his navy on another splendid victory, and Tokyo gloated over the sinking of both American and British battleships. Actually, no Allied battleships had even been in the area, let alone sunk, and the Americans fought the Imperial Navy to a draw that turned back or at least delayed their relentless push toward Australia. Nevertheless, Adolf Hitler himself gloated over the reported results in the Coral Sea and hailed the devastation of the common enemy. The Fuhrer wrote, 
After this new defeat, the United States warships will hardly dare to face the Japanese fleet again. Since any United States warship which accepts action with the Japanese naval forces is as good as lost. The losses had been appalling on the American side, particularly at Pearl Harbor, of course. There, eight battleships had been sunk or severely damaged, with 188 aircraft totally destroyed and another 159 planes knocked out of commission. At the Battle of the Coral Sea off the northeast coast of Australia, the mighty carrier Lexington went down, and the Yorktown appeared to be fatally damaged. According to Japanese intelligence estimates in May, before they set out on their midway expedition, the entire remaining strength of the U.S. Pacific Fleet included no more than three carriers and probably just two, perhaps two battleships, 13 cruisers, and 14 destroyers. No more than 40 fighting ships in all. Against this underwhelming force, Admiral Yamamoto put to sea with the largest armada ever seen in the Pacific, and perhaps the largest naval force gathered for a single mission in the history of the world. 190 ships, including 8 carriers, 11 battleships, 23 cruisers, 65 destroyers, and nearly 700 planes. This enormous fleet planned to consume more fuel in this one decisive operation than the entire peacetime navy used in a full year. Pounding eastward across the Pacific, the ships stretched out into an enormous arc covering 1,800 miles. At the center of this display of unparalleled nautical power, Admiral Yamamoto exercised personal command from the bridge of his behemoth flagship, the Yamato, the largest battleship ever built, weighing more than 70,000 tons. The seagoing monster boasted steel armor in many places that ran to 16 inches thick, along with the most powerful guns ever employed in naval warfare, with barrels nearly 70 feet long. The elite crew ran to 2,800. The Amato and its supporting vessels, known as the Main Body, rode 400 miles behind the Kido Butai, the carrier striking force, led by the four finest aircraft carriers in the Imperial Japanese Navy, with 261 planes between them. The plan called for using these planes to bomb and strafe the American base on the Midway Atoll, followed by Marines and landing craft to occupy the Little Islands. That, in turn, would lure the remaining American fleet out of Pearl Harbor in a doomed, belated effort to defend or recapture the outpost. While fully engaged with the superior Japanese forces of the Kido Butai, the main body would arrive with its awesome firepower to finish the job, the total destruction of the U.S. Navy in the Pacific. On board his gigantic flagship, Admiral Yamamoto meant to supervise that destruction personally, as the natural conclusion of his six months of running wild against the British and the Americans. The decisive battle would also echo his first triumphant experience of combat some 37 years before. In 1905, as a freshly minted 21-year-old officer, he lost two fingers of his left hand in the Battle of Tsushima Strait 
where the Russian Tsar lost virtually his entire navy in the lopsided victory that dramatized Japan's glorious emergence as a world power. Like most inveterate gamblers, Yamamoto relied on superstition to improve his odds. In order to reprise the victorious heroics of his youth, he selected the precise anniversary of Tsushima, May 27th, to launch his strike on Midway and American possessions that lay beyond. In fact, Seward's other acquisition, the immense forbidding, lightly guarded territory of Alaska, became a secondary target of the Japanese armada. Many military historians believe that Yamamoto ordered a simultaneous attack on the Aleutian Islands as a diversion to force the already overmatched Americans to divide and weaken their defensive forces. Others argue that he envisioned a potential pincers movement, with the victorious Japanese sweeping south and east from Alaska, while the bulk of their forces surged north and east from Hawaii, converging on the mainland to devastate California at both ends and to end the war. On June 2nd, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt sent a blunt warning to General Douglas MacArthur in Australia, who had only recently evacuated the Philippines. It looks at this moment as if the Japanese fleet is heading toward the Aleutian Islands or Midway and Hawaii, with a remote possibility it may attack Southern California or Seattle by air. On the verge between brilliance and being crazy. FDR knew of these dire possibilities not through spy planes or satellites, which didn't exist during World War II, but from brilliant, indefatigable codebreakers, who very fortunately did. Joseph Rochefort dropped out of high school and lied about his age to enlist in the Navy at the end of World War I. His passion for crossword puzzles led a friend to recommend him for training in the emerging science of cryptography. In the interwar period, the Navy sent him to Asia to learn the Japanese language and to apply his talents to monitoring the aggressive rising power in the Pacific. Earning the rank of commander, he won assignment to Station Hypo, the crowded, top-secret, below-ground bunker down a flight of stairs and behind a guarded steel door in a hidden corner of the Pearl Harbor base, where Rochefort toiled tirelessly to penetrate the heavily encrypted codes that the Imperial Japanese Navy used to communicate with its far-flung forces. Empowered to fill the fluorescent-lit dungeon with hand-picked obsessives and eccentrics, Rochefort slept on a cot beside his perpetually cluttered desk. He became notorious for wearing slippers and a bright red smoking jacket over his rumpled khaki uniform, a costume that provided plenty of pockets for his pipe and tobacco pouch. The blue clouds of fragrant smoke that surrounded him day and night aided his concentration. A sign on a colleague's nearby desk proclaimed, You don't have to be crazy to work here, but it helps a hell of a lot. And Rochefort himself later recalled that his most valuable associates lived on the verge between brilliance and being crazy. Despite the persistent skepticism of top Navy brass, and especially on the part of intelligence chiefs nearly 5,000 miles away in Washington, 
The unorthodox puzzle solvers and the cramped chaos of the dungeon produced remarkable results. They managed to decipher the most important Japanese codes at least two months before Yamamoto launched his strike on Midway and the Aleutians. But the authorities in the Navy Department in the nation's capital refused to accept their conclusions. The chief of naval operations, Admiral Ernest King, naturally worried that the oddballs at Hypo had reached illogical or unreliable interpretations of the decoded data, or that the Japanese had sent false signals intended for interception, misleading the Americans as to the enemy's intentions and battle plans. The idea that a bold commander like Yamamoto would deploy nearly all of his overwhelming resources against a minor target like Midway seemed to make no sense, and King hesitated to launch a preemptive response to a threat that hadn't yet materialized. Fortunately for Rochefort, his commanding officer at Pearl Harbor had developed enough respect for his resident mad genius to challenge the Washington higher-ups in his behalf. Admiral Chester Nimitz, Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, or Sink Pack in Navy lingo, was as businesslike, unflappable, and by-the-book as Joe Rochefort was impulsive and unconventional. Known as the Blue-Eyed Man for his penetrating Bunsen-Burner gaze, Nimitz allowed the Dungeon Boys to stage a cunning ruse to validate their translation of hundreds of coded enemy messages. They ordered the local commander on Midway to send out a plain-language radio message falsely reporting that the atoll's desalinization plant had stopped working and the outpost faced an acute shortage of fresh water. Sure enough, the Japanese picked up the erroneous report and broadcast an encrypted transmission to the entire fleet that an important destination designated only as AF faced a lack of drinking water and the ships should prepare accordingly. This left no reasonable doubt that AF could only be midway and that the bulk of the Imperial Japanese Navy would be headed that way. Nimitz moved decisively to get there ahead of them and to prepare a deadly surprise. With a fly swatter and a prayer. But the first challenge to achieve that ambush involved repairing a precious, badly damaged carrier that the Japanese thought they had already sunk. In the Battle of the Coral Sea, the Yorktown managed to dodge seven enemy torpedoes but took a single bomb that penetrated her flight deck, exploding below and killing or wounding some 60 sailors almost immediately. The survivors battled desperately against the resulting flames, which raged long enough to threaten the big ship's survival. Taking on water, the Yorktown still managed to limp back toward Pearl Harbor, leaving a streak of leaking oil that extended for nearly a mile behind her, like an ugly tail. Navy inspectors checked the damage in dry dock and initially wanted two to three months to make the crippled craft seaworthy and battle-ready. Under pressure from Nimitz and with round-the-clock work schedules, they revised the timetable to two weeks. But the sink pack scolded them with his burning blue eyes and ordered that the Yorktown, in whatever state of readiness, 
must sail in three days or not at all. Nimitz demanded band-aids and patches that could get the carrier to Midway, not a thorough restoration. Rather than try to restitch every ruptured seam, the frantic repair crews installed one huge steel plate that would serve to cover the most gaping wounds. The Navy secured every available worker in Honolulu, about 1,400 of them, toiling with no breaks or lapses. At night, giant floodlights illuminated the work, defying the blackout meant to protect the islands against potential Japanese bombers. Hundreds from the ship's crew joined the craftsmen who swarmed over the crippled carrier, some of whom worked 24 or even 36 hours at a time. After three days of hysterical but exhilarating intensity, the flat top left the dry dock and put out to sea. Just six years after its initial launch, the battered war machine didn't look or feel like new, but its mere presence might unsettle the overconfident Japanese, like a presumed dead adversary suddenly re-emerging from the grave. The Yorktown along with the other two available aircraft carriers, the Enterprise and the newly commissioned Hornet, and their task forces proceeded to their meeting point, about 300 miles northeast of where Hypo's intelligence led them to expect the Japanese striking force. The Americans designated the site of their rendezvous Point Luck, because all personnel knew they would need outrageous good fortune to stand any chance of prevailing or even surviving the coming confrontation with the far superior Japanese forces. Robert Casey, a civilian reporter assigned to the heavy cruiser Salt Lake City, wrote in his diary, As usual, we seem to be holding the short end of the stick, this time shorter than usual. We muster carriers, cruisers, and about a half-dozen destroyers to face one of the biggest fleets ever turned loose on the Pacific. An armada that rates as a good half of the Jap fleet, and we're meeting it as usual, with a fly swatter and a prayer. Fighter pilot Scott McCuskey experienced a similar sense of foreboding. He later recalled a profound feeling of doom. This whole situation looked desperate. Admiral Nimitz was throwing everything he had against the superior Japanese force approaching Midway Island, including the battle-damaged Yorktown. On board the destroyer Aylwin, Lieutenant Burdick Britton expressed similar anxiety after the ship's sealed orders had been opened. Lord, this is the real thing, he wrote in his diary. We have history in the palm of our hands during the next week or so. If we are able to keep our presence unknown to the enemy and surprise them with a vicious attack on their carriers, the U.S. Navy should once more be supreme in the Pacific. But if the Japs see us first and attack us with their overwhelming number of planes, knock us out of the picture, and then walk in to take Midway, Pearl will be almost neutralized and in dire danger. I can say no more. There is too much tension within me. The fate of our nation is in our hands. On the Japanese side, officers likewise understood that their complex coordinated strike against the already reeling Americans would decide the outcome of the war. Before setting sail from the crowded humming naval base at Kure near Hiroshima, 
Admiral Yamamoto risked public scandal by sending for the celebrated geisha Chiyoko Kawaii, who had been his adored companion for nearly a decade. While devoted to his wife, Reiko, and their four children, Yamamoto the gambler treated Chiyoko as an even higher priority. He spent four idyllic days with her at a rustic mountain inn before launching the cross-Pacific attack he had so meticulously planned. I myself will devote all my energy to fulfill my duty to my country to the very end, he wrote to her from the bridge of his colossal flagship, the Amato. And then I want us to abandon everything and escape from the world to be really alone together. Meanwhile, the men under his command felt none of the uncertainty that afflicted the Americans. As the Kido Butai steamed toward Midway, Commander Magataro Koga of the guard destroyer Nowaki noted, Our hearts burn with a conviction of sure victory. The first step toward achieving that sure victory involved the destruction of Midway's air base and its quick subjugation by the Midway Occupation Force of 51,000 men available for that purpose. At 4.30 in the morning of June 4th, Admiral Chuichi Nagumo, the aristocratic hot-headed commander of the carrier striking force, dispatched 108 planes to launch the attack. The mix of dive bombers, torpedo bombers, and their protective fighters reached their target on schedule. At dawn, but not before the land-based American planes alerted by radar and the superior U.S. intelligence scrambled to meet them. With aid from accurate anti-aircraft fire from the base, the Americans managed to destroy 11 of the Japanese attackers, while heavily damaging 14 more. Nevertheless, the dawn raid inflicted widespread destruction despite leaving the only runway virtually untouched. Nagumo meant to use it for his own aircraft after occupation, so the American bombers could still use it to refuel and attack the Japanese invasion force. Returning to their carriers with fuel running low, the surviving aircraft of the Kido Butai informed their commanders that Midway couldn't be neutralized without a second-wave attack. Meanwhile, some 30 American bombers launched from the base in the darkness before the first Japanese strike found their way to the Japanese carriers at 7.10 in the morning and launched their own attack. The enemy's fast and maneuverable Zero fighter planes made relatively short work of the American intruders, but a single B-26 after serious damage from flight deck anti-aircraft fire, made an apparent suicide run at Nagumo's flagship, the Akagi. Making no effort to alter its trajectory, the doomed aircraft aimed directly toward the carrier's deck and barely missed crashing directly into its bridge and almost certainly killing Admiral Nagumo and his entire command staff. This narrow escape, may have persuaded the admiral to disregard his explicit order from Yamamoto to keep half of his aircraft in reserve, armed for anti-ship operations, in case the American fleet got close enough to threaten the Kido Butai. Instead, moments after his close call on the bridge, he ordered his reserve aircraft rearmed with contact-fused general-purpose bombs 
for use against land targets. Nagumo had decided to finish off the already battered base at Midway before worrying about American carriers that might or might not be lurking in some still undisclosed location. With that began a fantastic chapter of accidents and blunders. Described 13 years later, by two of Nagumo's most capable and decorated subordinates and their retroactive analysis of the battle. The process of refitting the planes, loading them with their new bombs and preparing them for launch, normally took more than an hour. But after less than 30 minutes, at 7.40, came a radio report from a scout plane of a sizable American fleet to the east. The chain of command delayed some 20 minutes before confronting the admiral with this disturbing news, perhaps fearing his volcanic reaction. When the already rattled Nagumo finally received the report, he immediately reversed his recent order to rearm the bombers with land-based ordnance to prepare them for a second attack on Midway. The American warships offered a higher priority target. He demanded that the scout plane determine the specific composition of the American force before he decided how to deploy his aircraft and asked the already exhausted crews to go back to the original plan of equipping the planes with torpedoes and armor-piercing shells for use against enemy ships. As a decorated veteran of the engagement, Mitsuo Foshida summed up the situation on the flight decks that frantic morning. It was order, counter-order, disorder. Another crucial half-hour elapsed before the Akagi received signals that the American ships included a single carrier, with the one reconnaissance aircraft somehow failing to sight the other two. The timing could hardly have been less propitious because all four Japanese carriers now had to clear their decks to receive the incoming planes from the first midway attack. If they failed to move aside or to stow the waiting aircraft below decks, the low-on-fuel returning pilots would be forced to ditch in the ocean, losing their planes, if not their lives. In the midst of this confusion, Nagumo ordered a change of course for the entire striking force turning 90 degrees east-northeast to draw closer to the Americans. Minutes later, between 9.25 and 10, a wave of torpedo bombers from each of the American carriers, totaling 41 planes, found their quarry and flew in low to drop their payloads among the Japanese flattops. A Feast for Condemned Men the pilots of these American planes knew that they had signed up for perhaps the most dangerous job in the military, especially on a run like this one with no accompanying fighters to protect them. On board the Yorktown, the torpedo pilots received a special breakfast of steak and eggs, and one of them grimly described it as a feast for condemned men. The night before, Torpedo Squadron 8 listened to a pre-battle briefing on board the Hornet, for Lieutenant Commander John C. Waldron, a popular 41-year-old officer who told his flyers to prepare for the biggest battle of the war that may well be the turning point also. An Oglala Sioux on his mother's side, he graduated from the Naval Academy 
but supplemented his military career by studying law. He passed the bar and was raising a family. My greatest hope, he told his men, is that we encounter a favorable tactical situation. But if we don't, and worse comes to worst, I want each one of us to do his utmost to destroy our enemies. If there is only one plane left to make a final run-in, I want that man to go in and get a hit. May God be with us all. Good luck, happy landings, and give them hell. They did just that as they swarmed around the huge Japanese ships, but their slow-moving, lightly-armed Douglas Devastators proved no match for the battle-tested Mitsubishi Zeros that immediately rose to counter them. Though the flyers managed to come in low and close, surrounding the carriers as they'd been instructed, their notoriously ineffective Mark 13 torpedoes meant that even the most skillful, daring delivery of their precious payloads posed no major threat to the Japanese ships. In several cases, the torpedoes actually hit the armor of the enemy craft with an audible, sickening clang, but somehow failed to explode. Designed to travel below the sea's surface to mask their trajectory from the enemy, the self-propelled weapons sank gradually as they traveled. Occasionally, they passed directly underneath their intended targets, then dropped harmlessly to the ocean floor. Despite a brutal cost in both human and material resources, the fearless waves of torpedo bombers scored not a single meaningful hit while 35 of the 41 planes either fell to enemy fire or ran out of fuel, forcing their pilots to splash down in the ocean rather than returning to the American fleet. As he seemed to have anticipated in his final briefing on board the Hornet, the capable, eloquent Lieutenant Commander Waldron perished in aerial combat, along with nearly his entire squadron. As the few surviving devastators scurried away from death and danger to seek the safety of familiar flight decks. The Japanese pilots and crew aboard their great carriers felt a moment of exultation and fury that recalled the glory of all their prior victories. They continued to run across the crowded decks, rushing to complete the complicated job of preparing and launching those long-delayed new waves of bombers and fighters. They had a right to expect that these superbly well-trained airmen, part of a vastly larger force, would deal a final, decisive blow against the vulnerable American fleet. Perhaps they already had. Since well before dawn, the Emperor's elite forces had been engaged in ceaseless combat. Some of the men checked their watches, which read 1024 a time to savor what had turned out to be a morning of brilliant blue skies reflected in the sparkling Pacific, all elegantly ornamented by low-hanging, picturesque patches of gleaming white clouds at 3,000 feet. Concerning this pregnant, pivotal moment, Rear Admiral Samuel Elliott Morrison, a Harvard scholar and the official historian of the U.S. Navy, summarized its significance. For about 100 seconds, he wrote, the Japanese were certain they had won the Battle of Midway and the war. And then the sky opened. Those fluffy clouds had provided perfect cover for high-flying American dive bombers. 
a beautiful silver waterfall, these dive bombers coming down. At first, the Japanese officers failed to spot them, including Mitsuo Fushida, the expert aviator who had flawlessly led Yamamoto's attack on Pearl Harbor. Unable to fly at Midway because of his recent appendectomy, he paced and fretted on the deck of Nagumo's flagship, the Akagi, uneasy over the frustrating delays at dispatching planes to strike the American ships. At 10.20, Admiral Nagumo gave the order to launch when ready, he recalled. On Akagi's flight deck, all planes were in position, with engines warming up. The big ship began turning into the wind. Within five minutes, all her planes would be launched. At 10.24, the order to start launching came from the bridge by voice tube. The air officer flapped a white flag, and the first Zero fighter gathered speed and whizzed off the deck. At that instant, a lookout screamed, Hell divers! I looked up to see three black enemy planes plummeting towards our ship. Some of our machine guns managed to fire a few frantic bursts at them, but it was too late. The plump silhouettes of the American Dauntless dive bombers quickly grew larger, and then a number of black objects suddenly floated eerily from their wings. Bombs! Down they came, straight at me. A total of 47 bombers from the various American carriers had arrived at the precise moment of the enemy's greatest vulnerability, just as the last of the doomed torpedo bombers had been shot down and chased away. Even more remarkably, the Dauntless bombers had left their different flight decks at different times, with departures separated by more than an hour, had all flown more than 170 miles on dramatically different routes, searching the open ocean for the Japanese fleet, and then, after more than two hours in the air, they chanced upon the Kido Butai and each other at exactly the same time. Gordon Prang professor of history at the University of Maryland and one-time chief historian on Douglas MacArthur's staff, described these coincidences with a touch of awe in his posthumously published book, Miracle at Midway, 1982. He observed with wonder that for the Japanese, the final debacle was due to a stroke of good luck on the United States side. The uncoordinated coordination of the dive bombers hitting three carriers at once while the torpedo strikes were still in progress. Except for those six short minutes, Nagumo would have been the victor, and all his decisions would have been accounted to him for righteousness. An American admiral received those plaudits instead, and the battle day decisions of Raymond Spruance proved not only righteous, but wise. Another quirk of fate, an inexplicable stroke of luck, placed him in command of the Enterprise and the Hornet, just days before the ships left Pearl Harbor for Midway. Their previous commander, Admiral William Bull Halsey, had contracted a painful case of shingles that forced him to spend the most crucial days of the war in the hospital rather than on the bridge. He recommended Spruance to take his place, and Nimitz agreed, despite the new commander's lack of experience in naval aviation. The bookish, even-tempered officer known for walking miles on his flight decks for exercise and meditation, later earned the nickname the Quiet Admiral, a sharp contrast to the impulsive and sometimes explosive temperament of Halsey. 
in reference to the movie stars of the day. Spruance reflected none of the macho swagger of John Wayne and no trace of the dashing charisma of Errol Flynn, but instead embodied the quiet strength of Gary Cooper with a touch of Jimmy Stewart's aw shucks humility. In Pacific Crucible 2012, an authoritative and hugely satisfying account of the first two years of the war against Japan, naval historian Ian W. Toll declares flatly, in Raymond Spruance, Nimitz had discovered the most valuable American seagoing commander of the Second World War. Ordered to attack the Japanese striking force as soon as he possessed even a remote chance of success, Spruance made the single most crucial decision of June 4th. Though the range might be extreme, with no assurance of his pilot's safe return, he decided in the pre-dawn hours that they could conceivably find the lurking enemy and do some meaningful damage to their carriers. Rather than following the established protocols for naval aviation and directing the various squadrons to waste time assembling in the air in order to fly together toward the target, Spruance told each of them to proceed immediately on their missions without reference to the others. The different speeds and characteristics of the various planes, fighters, dive bombers, and torpedo bombers would have been tough to synchronize in any event and the quiet admiral dispatched them on separate attacks with the hope that those sorties would continue over a long period to delay or eliminate the Imperial Japanese Navy's ability to launch a counter-strike. Watching from the deck of an American cruiser in the dawn's early light of June 4th, reporter Robert Casey saw the American planes depart in wave after wave, rising into the sky and then heading in different directions. It would seem that the carriers are sending up all they've got, he wrote. The sky over toward the starboard horizon is filling up with little black crosses. It's all spectacular and beginning to be thrilling. Few men, after all, have had a chance to look upon a spectacle like this. In the nature of things, few will look on anything like it again. Each air group took its own course and followed an independent schedule based on its leaders' distinct and widely diverging solutions to the navigational challenges. The main strike force from Hornet missed the enemy entirely, going too far in the wrong direction before heading home with fuel running low. The ten fighter planes accompanying those squadrons all ran out of gas and ditched in the ocean, hoping for rescue that never came for most of them. The pilots from the Enterprise faced similar frustrations. Finding no trace of the enemy as they crisscrossed the skies above the empty ocean, Group Commander C. Wade Mac McCluskey refused to abandon the search, even though he knew that emptying fuel tanks, enemy fire, or a combination of the two might make this a one-way trip for most of his flyers. At the very point of giving up, he felt a sudden, electrifying thrill of possibility and relief when he suddenly spotted a lone Japanese destroyer, the Arashi, far below. The fast-moving craft steamed at full speed to the north while trailing a long, frothy white wake, which appeared from the skies like a sign carved onto the ocean's smooth surface. Two hours earlier, Robert Casey had watched the planes take off 
and seen the symbol of crosses rising in the sky. Now McCluskey saw an arrow on the sea pointing the way for his planes to follow. The single destroyer had separated from the Kido Butai in an unsuccessful attempt to drop a depth charge on an annoying American submarine. The small ship then struggled to rejoin its mighty carriers as quickly as possible, never spotting the Yankee planes that soared overhead, traveling above the cloud cover at a much faster rate of speed. As they approached a break in the clouds, Ian Toll writes, the entire enemy fleet came into view beneath them, like a collection of toy boats on a pond. Bomber pilot Clarence Dickinson recalled the panoramic vision that spread below him. Among those ships I could see two long, narrow, yellow rectangles, the flight decks of carriers. Apparently they leave the decks either the natural wood color or possibly they paint them a light yellow. But that yellow stood out on the dark blue sea like nothing you have ever seen. Then farther off, I saw a third carrier. And at the same time, McCluskey spotted something even more important. Additional American planes from the other two carriers arriving from different directions unexpectedly, inexplicably, and displaying the uncoordinated coordination that seemed to point to victory as clearly as the wake arrow in the ocean. McCluskey led his planes to attack with the sun behind them to conceal their approach and blind the anti-aircraft gunners who tried to shoot them down. They dived steeply at a 70-degree angle. Events unfolded so quickly, so unexpectedly, that it remains unclear which planes hit which ships, but all the bombers took pride in their work. Lieutenant Dickinson recalled, I was making the best dive I had ever made. The people who came back said it was the best dive they had ever made. We were coming from all directions, on the port side of the carrier, beautifully spaced. To counteract any zeros that might try to disrupt the beautifully spaced attacks, the Americans relied on the redoubtable Jimmy Thatch, a crack fighter pilot from Arkansas who later rose to the rank of four-star admiral. From his cockpit, he watched and wondered as the magical five minutes unfolded moved to an uncharacteristically poetic description. He noted this glint in the sun, and it just looked like a beautiful silver waterfall, these dive bombers coming down. I'd never seen such superb dive bombing. At the receiving end of the U.S. bombs, Fushida watched the same scene with a very different reaction that mixed horror with disgust. He noted that the Japanese fighter planes had been busy finishing off the doomed American torpedo bombers so that they had no chance to build altitude to confront the cascade of dive bombers who seemed to swoop down from above magically from all directions at once. It may be said, he wrote years later, that the American dive bomber's success was made possible by the earlier martyrdom of their torpedo planes. It all happened so quickly. The crowded condition of the flight decks contributed to the devastating results for the Japanese carriers. With harried crews still working to fuel planes and to switch their armaments, bombs, torpedoes, and gasoline tanks filled much of the available space, dangerously exposed to the dauntless bombers that plunged directly toward their targets. Even though the Akagi seems to have received only one direct hit, that single 
8,000-pound bomb did catastrophic damage. Crashing through the center of the flight deck, it penetrated into the upper hangar deck before exploding, triggering secondary explosions from fueled planes and stored ordnance. Admiral Nagumo's chief of staff, Ryanusuke Kusaka, reported, A terrific fire. Bodies all over the place. Planes stood tail up, belching livid flame and jet black smoke, making it impossible to bring the fires under control. Kaname Shimoyama, assigned to the hangar, remembered a feeling of utter helplessness on the part of the crew. It all happened so quickly. The hangar was very dark but engulfed in a sea of fire. I thought that our carrier would sink at any moment. Some desperate sailors, terrified by the leaping flames, made doomed attempts to save themselves by jumping overboard. Two other carriers in the striking force met similar simultaneous fates. By 10.26 in the morning, the dive bombers had also hit the Kaga and the Soryu with multiple strikes, lighting both great ships from stem to stern. It all happened so quickly, as Shimoyama observed, so quickly that not even the returning American flyers knew for certain which diving planes had struck which particular targets. The Soryu, which had taken three hits from 13 planes in the course of three minutes, suffered an appalling 711 crew killed. Six hours later, crippled but still afloat, the stricken craft took a torpedo from a Japanese destroyer, so it would never fall into enemy hands. The captain, Ryusaku Yanagimoto, refused pleas for his safe evacuation and instead insisted on going down with his ship. He did so while lustily singing the Japanese national anthem as the carrier slipped beneath the waves. An hour after that, at dusk, a second wave of American dive bombers found the Hiryu, the only previously undamaged Japanese carrier, and struck her four times. The Hiryu sank at nine the next morning, with the bodies of 389 men still aboard. All told, the Japanese lost 3,057 men, including many of the most valued and experienced pilots of the first air fleet. Their killed in action exceeded the 307 dead Americans by a ratio of almost 10 to 1. In addition to the destruction of all four carriers of Nagumo's Kido Butai, the Imperial Japanese Navy lost a heavy cruiser with serious damage to another cruiser and to three destroyers. The 275 lost Japanese plans corresponded to the American sacrifice of 132, while the United States lost only two ships, the battered, heroic, hastily repaired carrier Yorktown and one escorting destroyer, both torpedoed by a Japanese submarine on their way back to Pearl Harbor. In a matter of moments, the era of Japanese naval superiority in the Pacific had come to an abrupt, fiery, bloody, catastrophic conclusion. Steaming west to reunite with the powerful main body of the Imperial Navy's armada, and unready to face the wrath of his superior Yamamoto, Admiral Nagumo announced his intention to take his own life, and many of his staff officers shouted their readiness to join him. Chief of Staff Kusaka angrily rebuked them. You are just like hysterical women, he declared. First you get excited over easy victories, and now you are worked up to commit suicide because of a defeat. This is no time for Japan for you to say such a thing.
25 months later, the arrogant and irascible admiral did take his own life after another abject failure in the attempted defense of Saipan. Nagumo opted to place a bullet through his head rather than follow the traditional samurai method of seppuku by cutting open his belly. In Tokyo, the Japanese government responded to the midway debacle in a distinctly more modern fashion, with lies and laughably distorted propaganda. On June 6th, Radio Tokyo broadcast an English-language announcement proclaiming that six carriers of the United States Navy, which is very deficient in carriers, were sunk in a single smashing blow. Our fleet broke down the pitiful opposition of the United States fleet, bombarded the defenses of Midway, and captured the islands with insignificant losses on our part. An attack has been started on Pearl Harbor and Honolulu. Days later, Rear Admiral Tanatsugu Sosa wrote in one of Tokyo's popular newspapers, Now that America's northern attack route against our country and the most important enemy base in the Pacific Ocean have been crushed by the Imperial Navy and the recent battles of Dutch Harbor and Midway, Japan can now concentrate on attacking the mainland of the United States. With its east coast constantly menaced by German and Italian warcraft and its west coast fully exposed to the possible attack by Japan, the United States has been driven between the devil and the deep sea. It's unclear whether any responsible parties in the government or military actually believed such grotesque distortions, but Admiral Esaruko Yamamoto most certainly did not. He continued to direct the Empire's naval operations with his customary competence, but with fading confidence in the ten months after Midway. In April 1943, after the bloody Japanese defeat on Guadalcanal, Yamamoto planned an inspection tour of Pacific facilities to boost morale. U.S. naval intelligence intercepted dispatches with the details of his schedule and successfully decoded the contents. President Franklin Roosevelt personally authorized a mission to remove the enemy's most capable officer from the field of battle. Eighteen American planes ambushed his transport flight and shot it down over the jungle. Yamamoto never did get the chance to spend quiet time with his beloved geisha or to indulge his fantasy of operating a casino in Monaco. But he did receive a state funeral with many posthumous decorations, including Nazi Germany's Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross with oak leaves and swords, the highest honor Adolf Hitler ever bestowed upon a foreigner. God's Samurai For another Japanese hero, his nation's epic defeat at Midway carried not just strategic significance, but deep spiritual meaning as well. Mitsuo Fushida became a national symbol of courage and competence as the chief aviator at Pearl Harbor, personally transmitting the famous order Tora, Tora, Tora to command his fellow pilots to follow his lead in the flawlessly executed sneak attack. Returning home in triumph, he received the supreme honor of a personal audience with the emperor. He meticulously prepared to lead the attacks on Midway but suffered a life-threatening bout of appendicitis six days before the battle. Refusing an emergency flight to a Japanese hospital, he endured a shipboard appendectomy that forced him to view the aerial flight from the bridge of the Akagi 
rather than from the combat cockpit he preferred. When American dive bombers turned the flagship into a blazing wreck, leaping flames surrounded the bridge, and the surviving officers attempted to evacuate down a dangling rope. As Fushida descended, a sudden explosion threw him down onto the burning deck, shattering both his ankles. After several months of hospitalization and recovery, he received a promotion to captain and took a post as a staff officer on Tinian, an island near Japanese-occupied Guam, ordered to Tokyo just two weeks before the American invasion. He escaped the fate of all the other staff officers who ritually disemboweled themselves in a mass suicide after the enemy prevailed. In the war's final days, he attended a military conference in Hiroshima so he could organize aerial defenses for a glorious last stand against the invader. On the evening of August 5, 1945, he received urgent orders to return to Tokyo, where at breakfast, the next morning, he heard the horrifying news. All the colleagues with whom he had interacted the day before, along with nearly 100,000 more of their fellow citizens, perished in the world's first atom bomb attack. Retiring to the countryside, he resolved to set aside his military honors and decorations and to pursue the one-time family business of chicken farming. It was a rainy day in my life, he later recalled and his inner landscape felt as damaged and devastated as the physical scenery around him. Life had no taste or meaning. I had missed death so many times, and for what? What did it all mean? He got his answer in 1947, after General Douglas MacArthur summoned him to testify in trials of Japanese war criminals. Fushida had never been implicated in crimes of any kind, but he felt determined to defend his accused comrades-in-arms. War is war, he reasoned, and planned to collect evidence to prove that Americans treated their prisoners of war with the same ferocious cruelty for which the Japanese officers now stood trial. Greeting more than a hundred returning POWs at Uraga Harbor, Fushida reconnected with his former flight engineer, who had been presumed dead at the Battle of Midway. The survivor not only denied that the Americans practiced torture or abuse, but spoke warmly of a young woman named Peggy Covell, who cared for the captured Japanese as a sister would treat a relative. Amazingly, her own parents, Christian missionaries in the Philippines, had been beheaded by soldiers of the Imperial Japanese Army just moments after praying that God should forgive their own executioners. These stories and the account of another American POW, who had experienced his own awakening to God during his nearly four years of brutal captivity, helped Fushida find a new purpose in his life. That's when I met Jesus, he told Stars and Stripes, the military's official newspaper in 1971. Looking back, I can see now that the Lord had laid his hand upon me so that I might serve him. From that realization in 1949 until his death at 73 in 1976, he devoted his life to Christian evangelism, working with Billy Graham and other famous preachers of the gospel to tell his story to rapt audiences throughout the United States and Europe. He wrote several books and pamphlets, including from Pearl Harbor to Calvary, 
and for a broader audience, Midway, The Battle That Doomed Japan. A brief and admiring biography of Fushida designated him as God's Samurai. He remained acutely aware of the way a few fateful seconds on June 4, 1942, utterly transformed both his own life and the life of his nation. Five minutes, he wrote. Who would have believed that the tide of battle would shift in that brief interval of time? Even without undergoing religious conversions, other Japanese officers looked back on the miracle minutes that wrecked their hopes with similar awe and the same sense that the outcome reflected more than chance or miscalculation. Admiral Kusaka discerned in the midway debacle God's punishment for the sin of hubris. After the war, a consensus emerged that the all-conquering Japanese military had been fatally infected by the dangerous victory disease, an assumption that no earthly power could overcome the empire's combination of skill and might. According to most post-war analysis, this defiant arrogance virtually assured humiliation. Commander Masataka Chihiya insisted that there was nothing to wonder about in the disastrous setback for the emperor's forces. That defeat was something preordained. Events do not just happen. More than 2,000 years before the epic struggle in the Pacific, the Greek tragedian Sophocles concluded, Fate has terrible power. No fort will keep it out. No ships outrun it. Immediately after the battle, the Americans expressed a combination of wonderment, relief, and profound gratitude. Robert Casey reported, It turns out we have fought a major engagement, one of the biggest naval battles of all time, and miracle of miracles we have won. It was too stupendous to contemplate as we lolled in a mist of nervous exhaustion, mumbling to one another in senseless monosyllables, falling to sleep over our coffee. In Honolulu, Admiral Nimitz hesitated to credit himself for the victory. We were shot with luck on the morning of June 4th when the fate of the operation was decided. All that I can claim credit for myself is a very keen sense of the urgent need for surprise and a strong desire to hit the enemy carriers with our full strength as early as we could reach them. No one needed a reminder that the Navy task forces had assembled at an open ocean rendezvous optimistically designated Point Luck. In a 2011 review in the journal Naval History, Robert J. Mrazek concludes, Fate played an important role in achieving this critical victory. There was no planned coordination of the courageous attacks by the three torpedo squadrons that came in one by one and helped buy the battle time that allowed the dive bombers to arrive from the Yorktown and Enterprise under optimum battle conditions. Many of those who experienced the battle firsthand felt less hesitation in acknowledging a force beyond luck or fate and seeing some knowing guidance and organizing principle behind the uncoordinated coordination that altered everything. Captain Stanford E. Lindsay, a naval chaplain rooted in the Pentecostal Assemblies of God denomination, survived the sinking of the Yorktown in the last stages of the battle. After the war, he wrote a deeply touching little book called simply, God Was at Midway. 
Divine providence is as relevant today as it was in Bible times, he wrote. Events do not just happen. We did not win those battles by our wits alone. The odds were stacked against us at Midway, but in answer to the prayers going on back home in our great nation, the enemy forces made crucial mistakes at Midway. Those errors cost them the loss of ships and men, which resulted in their defeat and the turning of the tide in the war. Captain Lindsay survived to tell the story again and again until he passed at age 89 in 2010. He and his wife, Verna, enjoyed nearly 70 years of marriage and raised 10 children, half of whom followed their father into the military chaplaincy. Another notable veteran of the battle, Ensign Lee McCleary, passed peacefully a year after Captain Lindsay in 2011. Shot down at the height of the battle, he clung to life for 60 hours in a bullet-riddled raft while pursued by hungry sharks. He concluded reasonably enough, it was only through God's mercy that I survived and was rescued. Recuperating in his hospital bed at Pearl Harbor, he recalled a visit from Admiral Chester Nimitz himself. He said to me that it was by the providence of God that we won the battle, McCleary recalled. That was exactly the conclusion I had come to. In the weeks and years that followed, less devout observers followed the lead of Lindsay and McCleary and openly acknowledged Midway's illogical elements and cosmic importance. Army Chief of Staff George C. Marshall responded to news of the battle by calling it the closest squeak and the greatest victory. Gordon Prang, the eminent University of Maryland historian, who had previously penned the Pearl Harbor bestseller at Dawn We Slept, called his own account of the Mid-Pacific Confrontation Miracle at Midway. And the eminent British military historian John Keegan unequivocally anointed Midway as the most stunning and decisive blow in the history of naval warfare. No one reveled in the triumph more gleefully than Winston Churchill, who marveled over Midway in his memoir of the global struggle. The annals of war at sea present no more intense, heart-shaking shock, the former prime minister exalted. The novel and hitherto utterly unmeasured conditions which air warfare had created made the speed of action and the twists of fortune more intense than has ever been witnessed before. As the Japanese fleet withdrew to their far-off home ports, their commanders knew not only that their aircraft carrier strength was irretrievably broken, but that they were confronted with a willpower and passion in the foe they had challenged, equal to the highest traditions of their samurai ancestors, and backed with a development of power, numbers, and science to which no limit could be set. Only the dark gods know. Detractors of the United States and her enduring delusions of grandeur, and even skeptics among its own citizens, may groan at Churchill's effusions. And yet, something about the odd, illogical story of Midway compels grudging wonderment, even among embittered enemies. In his great novel, War and Remembrance, 1978, the late Hermann Woke evoked the point of view of a fictional German general and military historian, Armin von Roon, who declares, The annals of military conflict, 
from their dim origins in Chinese and Egyptian accounts to the present era, show no equal to the five minutes of Midway. In that mere instant of combat time, three Japanese carriers with their full complements of aircraft were reduced to smoking flotsam. These giant victims embodied the national strength and treasure of Japan, the culmination of half a century of heroic effort to become a first-class military power. In those five explosive minutes, Japan's world status laboriously built up from Tsushima Strait to Singapore, Manila, and Burma was shattered. Though she had yet to suffer three years of defeat and final atomic blast horror before accepting this fact, the United States of America has been a lucky nation, and this luck held remarkably on June 4, 1942. How long it will hold in the future, only the dark gods know, who bestowed on this crass mercantile nation of mongrelized blood and cowboy culture a virgin continent with almost infinite natural resources. Those same gods, or God, preserved the illogical American claim to the three islets at Midway Atoll, though those forlorn scraps of land hardly represented the ultimate prize of the struggle. No ghosts cling to this meager territory, unlike other legendary battlefields. The fight here concerned huge ships that never even sailed within sight of one another, dispatching their intrepid swarms of little planes to attack the opposing fleet from hundreds of miles away. The modest memorials left behind to mark their heroic deeds offer little basis for contemplation, but the vast, encircling, empty ocean surely does, even at a remove of 80 years. William Henry Seward's largest land deal for Alaska surely changed the destiny of the United States, but his smallest acquisition, in terms of acreage, altered the fate of the whole great globe and saw the decisive battle in history's greatest war.